Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. In this podcast, we discuss life as a security leader and challenges and opportunities that accompany the job. Listen to our past episodes at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're joined by Todd Cushing. Hi, Todd. Hello. How are you, Nabil? I'm well. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Todd is the president at 1623 Farnham. He is a nationally recognized data center, IT, and telecom executive with over 25 years of experience. Todd oversees the design and technology infrastructure of Farnham, establishing and maintaining relationships with telecom carriers and providing technology direction and support to customers. So Todd, we're very excited to have you today, and we're going to start things off with our rapid fire round of questions to just get to know our guests a little better. So let me know when you're ready and we can get started. Shoot away. Apple or Android? Apple. What's your favorite device from Apple? Boy, that's a tough one because I am Apple-licious kind of guy. I'm going to say probably the, the 14, the phone. Okay, okay. Yeah, did you get the 14 with the dynamic island or just the regular one? I went all the way. I, all right. Yeah. What's the most used app on your phone? Probably messaging. If you had to pick a non-default app, something different that you downloaded? I look at, you know, for my uh, cardio, it's a heart rate uh, app that I have that goes with a device. So I, I like to see kind of where I'm at relative to working out uh, quite a bit. And I walk a lot. So it's uh, pretty handy, pretty neat. Awesome. For your first job, was it in technology or in security or something else? I had to work my way up. So it was in a restaurant, bus and tables. Awesome. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Southern Missouri on Table Rock Lake. That's my paradise. Any specific reason why? It's just beautiful. It's serene. It's it's real quiet. It's a it's different pace. The lake's about 750 miles of shoreline. It's big. But people there are really nice. Uh, weather's not as cold or windy as Omaha. Omaha's uh, not ideal for weather. <laughs> Understood. So what's your favorite meal of the day, breakfast, lunch, or dinner? Breakfast for sure. Okay. What's your favorite holiday? You know, Halloween's pretty fun because it's not there's no real gift thing in, in, involved, and it's just little kids. I got to see a uh, granddaughter in her parade, and it was fun seeing that. It was, I guess Halloween prizes right there. Did you have a costume for Halloween? I did not. Um, all of the kids did, and I kind of you know got to see pictures of them all, but we did not. I did hang out with my wife and gave out candy and that kind of thing, but no, we, I did not. Okay. What do you do when you aren't working on security? For me personally, I read a lot of technical things and work with mechanical things. I'm uh, kind of a mechanical guy. I like older mechanical things. We'll talk about that in more detail. What was the last thing that you read? An article on Massey Ferguson's last night, an old 1961 Massey, but I was reading a technical manual. Awesome. What's the favorite part of your job? Developing the facility. You know, I've been in, with a lot of facilities, uh, IT for most of my life, but developing the facility, which includes the people, the processes, the way that we deliver, maturing with what the market and the clients need. And you know, there really isn't a lot of margin for error in, in those things. So you really are, you know, I, to me, it's a lot more sensitive than even maybe surgery might be. So you know, we have to really make sure that we do things right and we're responsive. What's the least favorite part of your job? Probably when we don't meet expectations, and then it happens, uh, if we, we have a budget struggle or we didn't meet an expectation where we, we didn't communicate clearly and set an expectation. So the client set it higher and you don't achieve it, or if it was happened in the case where it could be a coworker where you, you agreed to something. So communication is super important. And I just think if, if I don't feel like I 
I like to overachieve and I like to have you know, people I work with achieve it. But yeah, if I'm not, if I'm not meeting an expectation or I haven't set it properly, that's, that's really disappointing to me. And last question, what's your favorite cybersecurity event or conference? From a cybersecurity perspective, you know, I don't have, I personally don't attend cybersecurity events, but I think that the ITW is a telecom conference I really enjoy a lot. Uh, Metro Connect is one that we do in the spring uh, that I enjoy a lot, but not specific to security. Understood. Well, those were the questions. Thank you for your answers. Now we know you a little bit more intimately than we did at the beginning. So why don't we get started with the main part of the podcast? The first thing I have for you is I want to really get an understanding of what an edge data center is. And more importantly, would love to get your perspective on why you think they're becoming increasingly important today. So, so we're in Omaha, so we're in the middle of the United States. And, you know, we'll have a Chicago, Ohio, so they're in the middle, but we know the middle is, is the middle. But we, so I tease them a little bit, my friends there. But we uh, we are really, it's a carrier-centric, uh, we call it interconnection facility. Some people know them as carrier hotels. But you're, for me, the edge data center is an ecosystem. It's important that we have a carrier-based facility that has lots of interconnection options. So you're going to have your content and your hyperscalers accessible through that edge data center. So you got to have carriers, content, and some kind of hyperscale access in my mind. That's what's important. So, and that's really the reason they're becoming more important is they're, you know, the migration towards hyper hybrid cloud has really driven people to want to be closer. And so the ecosystem, if it's not rich, you know, it doesn't really work. You've got to have ways to interface, peer, whatever it is you're needing to do. Do you foresee the hybrid cloud gaining more popularity faster than going to pure cloud services? I do. I think, you know, we've, we've had dedicated clouds through third parties uh, that people had or, or enterprises built their own. And I think that as you have more hybrid clouds, more options, cloud can be expensive. And so you, you need to you know, figure out where, what applications need to be where. The other thing is, is your ability to get to different partners. So if you've got a bad partner or you want to change your relationship, so there's lots of tools that can get you to access an on-ramp, an off-ramp. So I think, yeah, it's, it's important. So from that perspective, then, what does third-party risk management look like in the data center realm? For us, we use a third party for our auditing. So we use a large, you know, nationally known auditing group who keeps us on point for things like ISO, PCI, SOC. So you've got your typical data center, typical uh, things that people are going to kind of look for you to be certified in. So your certifications are going to be really important. It's a lot of review, process, renewal, adapting, re- you know, making sure you're staying with the market. There are some things we don't certify for if we don't have a need for it because it's a distraction and a cost item. That you know, why have it if you don't need until you need it? But we try to be ready, uh, maybe 80% ready to do things we anticipate or we see the market driving us towards, but maybe you don't actually certify on it. So we try to stay good at what we are needing to be current on. So one of the biggest challenges and a lot of issues that we see arise, especially from the security perspective, but just in general, is dealing with, you know, challenges that arise from the complexity of interconnected entities, right? The more interconnected your ecosystem becomes, you're adding complexity that often have areas that may have weaknesses or areas where you may have missed certain things or certain considerations when you were connecting different entities together. Are there any specific challenges? that you can share with us to be aware of when managing large networks, especially with a significantly large amount of interconnected entities? 
Sure. And I, I think for us, it's communication is everything, which really breaks down into documentation. So, you know, your letter of authorization and what one might think they have these ports or one might think they have another. So a plan ahead of time, communication, everybody's signed off, everybody's verified what they're going to do, especially during change activities that people have really done their homework and done what they needed to do. It doesn't you know, there's some times where you just know certain players might not be as ready as others and some that are really good at just that they have a process and they follow it. And that's important. So I think for us, the port management, the um, LOA and the documentation are the three kind of things that you could really run into a problem. You've got to be authorized before you would do a disconnect. You know, obviously you want to make sure it's right. You don't want to create a problem. Or as you're doing connection, you want it to work for people to get on and off the field. They've got a window to make changes in or they're doing an upgrade and you don't want to to be actions on your part that aren't correct or accurate. Are there different types of automation that you're building to help you in this effort to manage this more effectively? Or is it primarily communication driven and making sure people understand what they're asking for? There's more automation being developed. So we want to get away from if we can or where we can, the spreadsheets. But sometimes when you're in front of a panel, you're going to have something built into something that maybe the team or the IT team try to build. And it's mostly you know, homegrown, if you will. Or if you're able to use a code or a scan to be able to get from this port to where you need to from a work order perspective, that's the automation you're going to get. So you're you're going to be automate your ticketing and your, your work order update that this was disconnected. Now this is where this is at. So somebody doesn't get dyslexic and write something down and create a problem. And that's going back to my earlier comment on documentation. It just can happen. So the more you can automate, the better off you're going to be and the faster it's going to work. Are there certain trends or patterns you're seeing in this space that you think will become more prevalent as you guys get more mature uh, in this space? Yeah, I think that the more and more hybrid cloud, you know, I think we're, we're finding that people want to have their applications where they make sense in a hybrid cloud. We find more, I'll call them next generation carriers, you know, your packet fabric, or your megaports or your console connect type people are going to be around in the edge to be able to help people get to those hybrid clouds. So more and more access to those hybrid clouds through good dashboards, you know, kind of click, use it, pay for it while you use it, business friendly. But again, you've got to make sure you, you know what you need it for and when you need it uh, storage wise and the cost can get, you, know, you, need to, you need to manage it. So if I can ask a broader question and feel free to rein me in as you see fit, would love to understand from you, when does it really make sense for an organization to migrate to a data center? But more specifically, would love to understand if you have certain advice for security leaders that are currently in the process of making that move. Sometimes people have less data center all the time because they've, they've maybe migrated or they've outsourced some parts of it or in their facility. Because they have less, pretty soon you're managing this mechanical electrical environment that you're, is way bigger than what you need or you've got to upgrade your facility and you've got that daunting expense. So it makes sense to make a change. Or from a staffing standpoint, it just makes more sense that your skill sets, you don't have them, either are going to have to build them or you're going to go somewhere where you can get them. So I think a lot of times moving the network first getting your network to a place where it's in a, the right ecosystem might make sense. And then it gets back to doing your homework on certifications, technology that people are using, you know, automation to be uh, transparent on what you can see, what's what's been done uh, with your your ports and your connections. But it's, it's important that the outsourcer you go to has options. So if you get into a scenario where you want to look at multiple next-gen players, you can pick from them where you couldn't do that probably in your own data center. And you're, you go to a interconnection facility, you're going to have, you know, 50 or 
more carriers to pick from. So you can pick a good partner, play them against each other, get good pricing, good performance, wholesale cost, wholesale speeds that you couldn't get on your own in your data center. Maybe you've got four or five carriers at your facility and maybe you're paying last mile, maybe you don't need to if you can get to a, a dark fiber scenario. And again, just making sure you know who you're doing business with. Are there specific security concerns that these leaders need to be thinking about as well? So for us, there's a mixture of really physical security that people are looking for. So you know, how many layers, you know, seven layers before you get to a cabinet and all of your processes that you get audited on. Uh, so again, having the documentation, you can actually put your hands on to look at ISO or SOC or PCI and look and see that it's, it's as basic as doing annual reviews for their people to repeating their change processes and they do things on a regular basis when they say they're going to do them, that the processes are repeatable. And so there's not like we hurried up and did it for an audit. It's, it's, you can go back and look over a year and see if there was a security alert, you know, what happened and what did you do for it? So that they are checking out badges for vendors and that they don't have too many badges out and that they do clean up their physical security. And the same goes for access. So, you know, I think that pen testing is important. I think that if you're, how you're managing your passwords for your facility or for your BMS, for your building or your access to your automation, you know, it's, it's important that you've got a, a trusted process of making sure that authentication is happening when you access those systems. That it, it really should be, you should be able to go back and see that and find that pretty easily. So as we start looking at the future of the data center industry, are there certain trends that you think will transform or impact where the industry is headed? You know, from my perspective, it's not an area that I'm well-versed in. So I always looked at the accelerated cloud adoption as being a way where data centers were going to be less and less popular. But what are you seeing in the marketplace as trends today? And how do you foresee different trends like cloud impacting the data center space? So from a cloud perspective, we see more... You know, there's certain players that, 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 that without being named that were the players, right? And so they were, and you and you look at them even lately in this week's updates from people on uh, the market, what's going on. Some of the guys that were number three or four are number two or three in revenue and in market share. So the search engine guys are, are, are making up ground quickly and their business is big. So with that comes a lot of tools and a lot of automation. And I think, you know, Google Next had a lot of 10, 10 things they came out with that I personally don't get to the geeky level anymore, but I, I find that I found a lot of things. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. That's pretty neat. So you find more and more tools and they all have them, right? They all have their, 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 their hotspot. But I think as you look at augmented reality, extended reality, virtual reality, internet of things, your future is going to support that. So we, we find that there are people doing a lot of, you know, there's blockchain businesses out there that have nothing to do with finance. So it's things that are in the metaverse. So if you believe the metaverse and you believe that all, everything I just mentioned is going to be in the metaverse and you're going to be able to do some of that through blockchain. So NFTs are going to be a thing in three years. You know, you're going to have title documents, uh, contracts that are going to be NFTs, I believe, that are going to be normal for people to do that. So I think as you look at the facilities that can support that or the processes that can support that where you put your data, you're going to be better off. And I think people will be surprised how much activity, if they drill down on that, that's not financial is going on or businesses that are about to be public or, or are public that are out there. But most people don't really, they don't hear a lot about that. You hear about augmented reality, virtual reality, but you don't hear about the other things so much. So if I can go off topic a little bit, would love to get your perspective on the trends we're seeing in the AR and the VR space. 
What do you think is going to happen in the future? What do you think is going to gain popularity? Any bets you're making on one or the other or both? So I've seen the same robot dog videos that scares the heck out of me like everybody else. But but I'll just say, when I look at the customer usage for it, for medical, things that they're doing, there are things that they're, they're doing with organ. You could actually spin up a heart and have people remotely look at the heart through surgeons and tell somebody with a you know, holoscope how to do the surgery. Uh, that that could be spun up in the 3D. That's happening. So that that bandwidth is huge, and it's it's multiple ways of 5G that they're doing development on campus to be able to make that happen. Imagine the security implications around that, right? For GLBA and everything else. I believe that it's going to be it'll be military, it'll be medical, it'll be business, but there's going to be a lot of things beyond gaming that people are going to be able to use it for and are on the tip of using it. There are programs out there that people can go to school to learn how to develop that. If they're already a biologist, already know the you know human whatever it is that they're into. If it's a, if it's facial or if it's uh, hands or organs, if they can develop the technical skills to, to be able to bring that to the marketplace, which is something we don't have today, right? New careers, new jobs based on technology. But again, wrap your head around the security you're going to need to make sure that that's all tucked away and nice and neat. And I think it will be. It, it appears to be. Well, a thing that really interests me is in the medical space in particular, especially around the example that you used, right? Being able to maybe guide someone through a surgery remotely from across the world and being able to look at 3D heart and be able to do some diagnosis on what you think is the problem, etc. I almost feel like there was this promise that we had from 5G enabling a lot of that to be reality. But from my perspective, I feel like 5G has failed. 5G did not give us the dream that we were hoping for from a speed and interconnectivity perspective. As someone from the data center background, would love to understand what your thoughts there are. And if you think I'm maybe naive in assuming that 5G didn't really live up to its expectations. So if you had an Apple 14 with all the bells and whistles, you'd be screaming on 5G. <laughs> so I just tease you. But I, I think, though, for me, I've got a 5G pole right behind me. We've got our the C-RAN Verizon's in our facility. So we've got a pretty good access to speed. But I, but I would say that the medical side, they were having trouble. And as again, we just, we just present, this is what we have. So we're a carrier neutral facility on the edge. So we just present, this is who's here. If you guys can use this to make your business faster, better, great. They grow, we grow, everybody grows. So this particular large medical facility was having trouble getting the developers to move content between each other securely and fast. So they had 5G players that aren't even announced in that region come to that region and help them out. And so we, we were part of a 5G it's a virtual reality challenge that's gone on in the Midwest here. And so we've been a sponsor of it. And so as that, there were relationships already in place. So we could go to Nokia and T-Mobile and other people and they and they would they would support that. And so they actually used multiple companies to donate equipment, to try things out, to make this work and everybody learned from it. And so from a development standpoint, they were able to move the data that couldn't move before through 5G specifically. So they looked at dark fiber on the campus and they looked at using the existing data center. And what happened was it was just faster to, to do it with help from others. So with it then moving dark fiber, you do get to a place where you could imagine the very smart gray hairs looking around in a, in a or no hairs, right? The, the guys that are in a, in a Zoom call looking around uh, at, a, at a surgery at, a, at an organ and they could advise from anywhere in the world. They could be you know, on any continent telling this person with steady hands and that lens what to do and advise. Imagine that scenario of them having your histology and that model for that heart telling them, hey, this, I wouldn't do that. I would do this. And then they could talk about it. That's pretty next level. That's pretty cool. Very true.
That's awesome. So we like to make sure we talk to our guests about things outside of security and outside of work. You hinted to this earlier that you're very mechanically inclined. Can you share with us what some of the things are that you really enjoy doing outside of work? Yeah, I, I need to focus my scope. So I, I am in, uh, I like old cars. I like old boats. I really enjoy anything from a carburetor, an updraft carburetor, turning it apart, making it work, to really do a restoration over a period of time. So I'm restoring my six. Triumph TR6. This is a car that I've had, you know, more than a few, but I've got a old Triumph TR6 69 was the first year they made it. So I, I literally will do all my own welding, my own fabrication, everything 100% myself. I do it at night if I can't sleep. I wake up thinking about 5G or whatever is going to come next and I can't go back to bed. I might go down in my garage and play around for a little bit and then come back and I'm, I'm totally, my brain's ready to go back to sleep and get the sleep of the rest I need. But that's what I typically do. That or I've got five grandkids, they'll keep me busy too. So the Triumph, that's the convertible, if I remember correctly, right? Yep. The two-seater convertible? It was a two-seater with a straight six-cylinder in it. Nice. So you said you're working on one right now, or you finished, that's the last project you had? I've got one that's on jack stands in my garage right now, and the uh, motor and everything's out of it, but I am working on uh, fabricating a little rust. It doesn't have a lot of rust, but it's got a little rust in the driver's side front rocker panel that's going to be behind a fender. Nobody's going to see it, but I would know if it wasn't right. So I'm working on that right now. So are you the kind of person that will usually fabricate their own parts, or is it only if you cannot get an original part or get a part that's currently available? That's a good point. So if today's world, if I get a replacement part, they're not usually bent to the same sharpness or they're straight that the brakes were used for the metal from the factory. But a lot of times I'll use, uh, if I can't fabricate it, I will get a part and cut a section out and graft it into where I need to go. So now it's got 100% Triumph parts. And uh, so that's typical. But I've got, you know, in all fairness, a 49 Chevy wagon that's been dropped and a 34 Ford and no, no, none of those three are drivable. So I can go down there right now and play in my garage and um, you know, there's nothing that's super expensive, but I've owned it all for a very long time. And, uh, you know, I, I'm confident that I'll get through them eventually. But I've, I've, I've actually completed projects from time to time as well. I'm not very mechanically inclined, but I've been trying to do more and more mechanical things on my own when I can. And I ride motorcycles, so I've been trying to at least, you know, maintain my own motorcycle and, and do all the servicing as much as I can. But a horror story I had was last year, I needed a part. It was, it was nothing old, fancy or anything, just needed a fairing for my motorcycle. And that took over four months to get here, to find the right one and get it to me. Wow. And, you know, with the supply chain problems lately, it's kind of crazy to even be able to get basic parts. So I was curious to see how you're faring in that space. And when you're looking for specific parts, is that still a challenge? Or do you have a secret source that you could share with me so I can look there for anything I need in the future? Most of my stuff is pretty old. So it's really, uh, it's going to be eBay or Facebook Marketplace. I'm really, really looking for recreated parts. If I was looking for ball joints on a car or something like that, there are places that readily have Triumph parts. There's just not a lot of people restoring those that they're around. The places are consolidating. So you have to watch and see where a place, of who who bought them or who's got the parts now. Like, so I've got super into motorcycles, but I go to 71 Yamaha Enduro 175. That's pretty original. And uh, the carburetor I thought was going to be replaced. And I had a tough time getting a, getting that carburetor sorted out but i had to buy like three carburetors to get the parts that i needed to i wanted an original carburetor i didn't want a aftermarket bolt-on carburetor it took me a long time to work through that process but the bike's running great now awesome well todd thank you so much for your time we really appreciate you being here and sharing all your insights with us and hopefully we'll get to see you really soon great thank you appreciate the interview and the time thank you for listening 
If you want to join us as a guest on the podcast or have a recommended guest, please email us at podcast at netspy.com. Until next time.